Good morning. Welcome to this time of worship. I'm so excited to connect with you as we dig deep into God's Word and move into these truths that truly change our lives. Scripture clearly emphasizes that our faith must move forward. True, genuine faith always moves forward to mature, to grow, and to pursue the, the purposes that Jesus has for us. So welcome to forward. And Mark chapter 6 and 7 brings us to an emphasis that I believe we will all find very, very familiar, perhaps even all too familiar. Jesus never intended that we would become stuck in our faith. But sometimes this happens. A YouTube video was posted of a young boy rescuing his sheep from a ravine. He tied a rope around the hind legs and pulled the sheep out without injuring the animal. And as soon as the sheep was freed, the animal made two or three joyous bounces and then went headlong right back into the ravine. Now, the haphazard activity of the sheep causes us to smile, especially when added to the young boy's diligence to pull the sheep back out once again. But I loved the posts that were added to the YouTube video. One post simply said, wow, look, this is my life. Another post added, no wonder Jesus calls us sheep. But my favorite post was the one that stated, this is me and Jesus every day. Now, we laugh at this anecdotally, but Jesus never intended that we would become stuck in our faith. In fact, this becomes a very dangerous reality for many individuals. So today we are called to move past these moments wherein we can become stuck. The year was 1925 in Mammoth Caves when Floyd Collins, after excavating, became stuck. He was there several days. Just in sight were people who were trying to reach him. Food, water, all the nourishment he needed was just in sight, but he could not free himself, and he perished. And that, that horrific story reminds us of how important it becomes that we would not live our lives stuck in some place where Jesus certainly desires that we move through. So I welcome you into the sixth and the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark, where we discover how to move beyond those moments wherein we feel stuck. So let's look within these chapters to find some very familiar places wherein one can become stuck in their faith. In fact, we might find these all too familiar. Beginning in chapter six, verse one, we first discover individuals who became stuck in their disbelief. When chapter 6 opens, we read that Jesus went into his hometown. Now, although not stated, this obviously references Nazareth. He's been in Capernaum, and now he travels from Capernaum to Nazareth, uh, some, somewhere halfway between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And so coming into Nazareth, he preaches in the synagogue, which was very customary of our Lord as he would minister later. This became very customary of the Apostle Paul, entering into the synagogue to preach to the crowds gathered. Now here we see some familiar themes of Mark's narrative opening. One familiar theme would be the synagogue, wherein the narrative of Mark continually locates Jesus, possibly some 11 or 12 times referenced all throughout the gospel, wherein Jesus stepped in to teach and in that teaching setting would at times perform miracles. Another theme would be built upon the word astonished. Again and again, Mark's narrative, led by the Holy Spirit, uh, states the astonishment of the crowd. And we know that Mark's narrative focuses upon the emphasis of Jesus. Here is Jesus becomes the theme throughout, and, and the crowd became astonished 
when Jesus would teach and perform miracles. And this was obviously a very familiar theme of Mark. Another theme would be uh, the close proximity of Jesus' family. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 21, we notice Jesus' family and his, his people, as that verse would state, pressing in close and having great doubt about Jesus. We know in that reference that those closest to Jesus exhibited disbelief. We find that here. Look at verse 3. The crowd began to say, Jesus' family and relatives began to say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Now, obviously, Mary gave birth to Christ as a virgin. and Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, God in the flesh, became with us, became one of us. But we also know that after this, there were other siblings born. And so the people who knew Jesus' earthly family the best began to ask in response to his miracles, is this not Mary's son, the carpenter? And verse 3 offers something staggering. They took offense at him. And then Jesus said very proverbially in verse 4, a prophet is not uh, without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives in his household. And then chapter 5 and 6 gives this startling conclusion. And Jesus could do no miracles there except healing a few. So the emphasis lays upon not the fact that God's hands are tied when we disbelieve, but upon the fact that when faith is absent, there is not that which God can do when we trust him. And so this is a staggering reality of individuals stuck in disbelief. Even those closest to Jesus could not get past the, the disbelief that he is who he says he is as the Messiah. This phrase, they took offense at him, comes from the old Greek word skandalizo, from where we derive our term scandalon, actually indicating that which is, uh, is interruptive, that which is, is wrong, and that which can fracture and push apart. And so the people closest to Jesus would not allow their hearts to truly see him for who he is. There was something more than just in the environment. There was something within their own hearts that caused them to say, I cannot believe in him. I can't open my heart to him. So I ask you today, what exists in your life, follower of Jesus or not, that keeps you from truly opening your heart and trusting him and his direction and his leadership in your life? Oh, we dare not become stuck at the disbelief or are stuck in our disbelief. And I find it amazing that those who knew Jesus were so familiar with him that familiarity uh, became something that galvanized their hearts. And, and at times, Jesus may move you to a place that is unfamiliar, to a calling or to an experience that you're not familiar with. And at times, when we are moved out of the familiar, we can tend to reject and resist, and that can hinder our belief. And so the crowd around Jesus was asked to believe something about him that was not familiar. Jesus, the carpenter, was familiar to them, but his messianic dignity was not. So they rejected what was not familiar. Do not reject what is unfamiliar. In fact, I, I love the, the old theologian Martin Buber who said this, the next time you read the Bible, read the Bible as if you are very unfamiliar with what God has said, meaning 
Lean in, open your heart. See this as new and fresh, that which our Lord has said and that which our Lord desires to accomplish in our lives. Do not become stuck in disbelief. Now we move on to verse seven. And Jesus uh, began going from village to village again, out of Nazareth, ministering and teaching and healing the sick. And now we notice something significant about Jesus' disciples. When verse 7 opens, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out. Now, this commissioning was preemptive to their apostolic calling for the sake, I believe, of preparation. All three synoptic gospels reveal Jesus sending out his disciples. And as they are, as they are sent out, Jesus reminds them very significantly that they should go out in the spirit of being completely dependent upon Jesus' provisions. He gave them authority. Uh, Incidentally, in the Greek, that's an imperfect tense. He gave, indicating that this would not be the Pentecost filling of the empowerment, but that which was for the moment. So the disciples were actually being sent out as an extension of Jesus' earthly ministry, at this very moment, and he he sent them out in authority in pairs uh, so that they would not have to minister along. And and Jesus told them, uh, take no bread, take no bag, take no money. And then Jesus would later say, only wear one tunic and then would later say, hey, when you when you go to the house that is hospitable to you, don't leave to find a better place. What was Jesus teaching them. Well, he was giving them the opportunity to see his own power at work in their lives, but he was also teaching them that for the remainder of their days, as they follow him, they could not become stuck at convenience. At times we are tempted to take an extra tunic, to depend upon the bread and the sandals and whatever else we may have so that we can feel a bit secure in our journey of faith. Jesus would tell us, do not depend upon that which is not of the Spirit, and and do not depend upon things that you can touch or see. Depend upon me, Jesus would say. And so at times you and I can be tempted to, to lean toward convenience so that as we hear the calling of our Lord, we first filter that calling unwittingly, I might add, sometimes through the thought of convenience. What will this cost me? Will Will I be willing to truly fulfill this assignment or this opportunity open before me. And so here we have a picture of the disciples themselves being reminded, do not become stuck in a place where you're depending upon convenience to to uh, motivate your obedience. It's a very dangerous thing. Now, all three synoptics show this uh, preemptive sending out of the disciples. But I love what we find recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 35. Jesus actually reminded the disciples in that narrative, uh, do you not recall that when I sent you out without shoes and without added conveniences that you lacked nothing? Do you not recall this? Do you know the response of the disciples in that episode? Nothing. The scripture testifies they stayed silent. Jesus had pinned them down to the very teaching he desired to accomplish here in verses 7 through 13. And that is, if you will depend upon me, you will lack nothing. So let's make certain that we are not stuck in our conveniences. From the New York Times Review, 
law professor and technology expert Tim Liu exclaims that there is an underestimated force that drives our daily lives. That force is known as convenience. We want nearly everything about our lives to be convenient, efficient, and easy. And then he describes that sometimes convenience may be positive, but there is always a dark side to convenience. This is what he explains. With his promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, convenience threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Conveniences created to free us can become a constraint on what we're willing to do and thus in a subtle way can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much to the wrong thing. What an amazing appraisal of convenience. Let's not become stuck in convenience. Now, following the narrative far, we now uh, join Mark's narrative in verse 14. Now, before we uh, enter into that next segment of the narrative, notice in verse 13 that the disciples went out casting out many demons and anointing uh, the sick with oil. So there was a movement among this geographical area that caught the eyes and the ears of King Herod. And this evil ruler uh, began to assess what was happening and thought John the Baptist had been resurrected from the dead because Herod had had John the Baptist killed, had him beheaded. And many scholarship indicates that Herod began to feel guilt and remorse that he gave in to the whims of his family and, uh, and, and actually took the life of that holy prophet of the New Testament, John the Baptist. But this becomes an emphasis to reveal that amid the amazing movement of our Lord, there becomes a warning not to be stuck in the influence of evil men. Herod references one of the most conversely postured opponents to the early movement of the gospel in the ministry of Jesus. And so this becomes an interpolation in Mark's narrative, meaning a story within the story, as we see so many times in Mark's narrative. Now his story of the disciples continues in verse 30, but in verses 14 through 29, we're given an emphasis of of what happened between the Herodian family and John the Baptist to indicate that Herod's evil plot worked to benefit the movement of the gospel, even though Herod tried to stop and tried to appease his own family and, of course, his followers. So we need to make certain that when evil permeates our culture, that we are not stuck in and under that influence as if to say, that this would determine what God can do. Absolutely not. Move beyond that for our God works sometimes in spite of, and sometimes he will even use the presence of evil to accomplish his task. It was Albert Einstein who once said, it is easier to denature plutonium than the evil spirit of a man. So let's remember that when evil men rise up, whether they be uh, localized and in relationships come against us or whether it be on the global stage, we cannot become stuck at the evil man does. We trust that God is still at work and God will ultimately control and bring that evil to the appointed end. We trust God and we continue serving him. So if you desire to move forward in faith, do not become stuck under the influence of evil, especially under the influence of evil men. Now we fast forward to verse 30 where the previous account with the disciples 
continues. And we notice something about Jesus calling them to a moment of rest. After all of this significant ministry and work that we saw described in verses 7 through 13, we, we had that interpolation of Herod's story. Then we move quickly to verse 30, where the story of the apostles continue. Herein lies the Markian sandwich from, from verse 12 and 13 to verse 30. Now the, the apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So verses 7 through 13, they had been sent out bios in two, in, in pairs of two, and they had seen uh, through the extended ministry and power of Jesus many wonders. So they came back and reported this uh, to Jesus. This becomes the message of verse 30. And in verse 31, Jesus said to them, come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest for a while. The Greek word there, anapao, gives us the word rest, indicating a rest of completion. Jesus indicated that this assignment of going out, recorded in verses 7 through 13, has now been completed. Come and rest. Do you notice the three significant callings that will help you and me not to become stuck at the work? Now, the work represents a divine calling, as verses 7 through 13 indicate for the disciples. But Jesus would not let them become stuck there. Jesus said, come away and rest. Jesus first said, come away. He called them away from the busyness of what they had experienced. And then Jesus called them to himself and from the crowd. He called them away, rest. But he did not simply mean a recreational rest or, hey, you, you have vacation, uh, report back in two weeks. No, Jesus meant come away from the busyness that has demanded you. And then secondly, Jesus said, come to me and away from the crowd. And then third, Jesus said, to find rest, and he certainly indicated rest for their soul as well as their body. So as emphatic and significantly important was the work of the disciples, Jesus said, you can't become stuck there. Come away. There's the first calling. Come away. Second calling. Leave the crowd and come to me, Jesus said. Third calling. Allow your life to rest. Even the tense of the verb rest indicates a completed action. This actually emphasizes a clear break between the busyness we sometimes find ourselves in and resting before Jesus. I encourage you, follower of Jesus, pull away, rest. I know sometimes uh, I need to preach this over and over again to, to my, my own life. It becomes very difficult at times to push away and to say rest. But, you know, the rest spoken of here does not simply reference a recreational rest. Most of us are extremely good at that calling. The calling here references coming before Jesus, not just lead the crowd, but before Jesus. Come and rest your soul. You will, you will have days of physical rest that will never become evident if your soul doesn't rest. The, the edginess, the tiredness and fatigue that can cause you to respond with quips instead of with the love of Christ, all of that will not be transformed with, with any measure of vacation for physical recreational rest. Only when we come and rest before Jesus can our souls be revitalized. This becomes the emphasis, which means we cannot become stuck at work. Author Lillian Guild tells a humorous story. She and her husband driving and noticing a motorist on the side of the road with the hood up. They pulled over to help him, and he was out of gas. 
and he testified dressed for the next business meeting that he thought he could make the meeting and he didn't want to be late. So he didn't take time to stop and fill up with gas and he ran out. Luckily, um, uh, Lillian and her husband had a gas tank, which had well, about three gallons. So they just gave him the tank, uh, gave him the gas can. He filled his car up and off he went. Well, later they passed him again on side of the road again, hood up again. So they pulled over and he was thankful to see familiar faces, but they looked at him shaking their head. What happened now? He said, well, the, the gas you gave me, I thought would actually get me to my meeting. So I did not stop and fill up. I thought I could make it. He hadn't learned his lesson that a little bit is not going to take you a long way. And I think sometimes we do that with our rest. Oh, I'll take a cat nap here, or I will, I'll have a five minute devotion here before I rush off to my busy uh, agendized day. No, that's not what God calls us to. Through Christ, he calls us not to get stuck at the work, but to come before Jesus to find that rest. What an amazing calling we have. Now we come from this calling of rest to a phenomenal story that actually becomes very familiar to us, the feeding of the 5,000. So this is what happens geographically and in transition. This rest was interrupted by the crowd. So Jesus and the disciples again boarded the vessel, which references a familiar theme also in the Mark narrative. They boarded the vessel and, and most scholarship would indicate that Jesus and the disciples were sailing westward and eastward. And as they're sailing away from the crowd, this is what we are told in the narrative. The people saw them going away, verse 33, and many recognized this and ran together on foot from all the different cities and arrived at the point of disembarking uh, way before Jesus and the disciples. So they left the crowd and as they're sailing the vessel across the waters from west to east across the Sea of Galilee, uh, probably on a northern route, because that's where most of the major villages were that we see indicated here, many people begin running to find Jesus here. They were, they were willing to repose their life before him, hoping for some temporary fix to their dilemma, few of them were willing to dispose their minds and hearts to his teachings. They simply wanted to repose themselves before him for a, a quick touch of, of his healing and his, his miracles. But nonetheless, the crowd raced and, and arrived at the place where they disembarked. And thus we have the setting for the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we'll not read this verse for verse. Most of us are very familiar with this amazing chapter, but I just focus on some key verses. Verse 37, after they discovered the people were here and were not going anywhere, the disciples felt they needed to give Jesus some advice. And Jesus, and Jesus heard his disciples saying, hey, you need to, yes, limitations became their focus. You need to send them home. We can't feed them. Verse 37, Jesus said, well, if you think that's the problem, you give them something to eat. Again, this was teaching as much as a miracle. All four gospels uh, give the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Each of those accounts have a teaching dynamic as the context. Here, there exists no difference. The, the context, I believe, Jesus was teaching his disciples again is that regardless of how high and Impossible the calling seems, trusting in Christ and who he truly is will, will provide everything you need. You'll not be lacking. But at times, like the disciples, we can become stuck at limitations. This can't be possible. We can't afford this. I, I do not have the ability to perform this assignment. And again and again, we can become stuck 
and that which we think limits us. Well, the disciples said when Jesus offered them the opportunity to provide food, the disciples ran quick math to say, well, I would have to work six months. That would be the equivalent of 200 denarii to to provide enough food for these people. We we know at the end of this passage, 5,000 plus became the number. So the the uh, five loaves and two fish became the point of the miracle. All were fed, and yes, there were 12 baskets left over. Each disciple had the proceeds of the miracle when everyone else had not just been fed, but had been fed, according to the text, to the point of satisfaction. So here we are, we are hearing what Jesus intended to teach the disciples. Don't become stuck at the limitations. So consider this. Consider the outcome of the disciples' math. And then consider the outcome of Jesus' math. The disciples' math, if we can uh, look at this again anecdotally, the disciples' math had as the result, send everyone home. We're in over our heads. We can't do this. What were we thinking? You see, the disciples' math was based upon limitations. And the result was, send everyone home. We can't handle this. This is impossible. I think there are times many of us within and without the church would say, this is impossible. There's nothing that can be done here to relieve the situation. And we can become stuck at limitations. Look at the result of Jesus' math. Jesus' math is he raised the very small lunch to heaven and, and intercessorily blessed with, with the power of God surging through him. He blessed the very small, seemingly insignificant contribution. And the result of his math, 12 baskets left over after everyone was satisfied. Make no mistake that each disciple stood there holding their baskets thinking, okay, we, we need to go with Jesus' math next time. We cannot become stuck at our limitations. Now we move on past this story pretty quickly because the next scene, verses 45 through 52, indicates an event that happened immediately after this feeding. So verse 45 opens and they got into the boat again, a familiar theme of the Mark narrative. And Jesus actually said, um, you go away and Jesus left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the sea and a storm pressed in and uh, Jesus could see his disciples straining with the oars from his uh, precipice where he was praying. The wind was against them, uh, verse 48 teaches. And Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Look at verse 48. And he intended to pass them. We see that our Lord's desire was to allow the disciples to see him ocularly so they could say, there's Jesus. Let's not panic. We will not perish. But instead, when they saw Jesus, they said, it's a ghost. And I can imagine Jesus thinking, what is it going to take for y'all to realize you can trust me regardless of the event? They cried, it's a ghost built upon some type of, of folklore of maritime lifestyle that ghosts abided upon the storms. And so they, they went to their human reasoning and superstition instead of trusting Jesus, even after what they had seen. Jesus said, take courage, it is I. Verse 51, he stepped into the boat, everything became calm. Verse 52, they had not gained any insight 
from the incident of the feeding of the 5,000 because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts became in the Greek poros, which is a word for marble. Their hearts became hard. They could not be convinced that Jesus has this. Do you find yourself there sometimes? We would not like to admit that we can act stubborn, but at times maybe our hearts are poros. We are like marble where our, our souls have been shut down. Perhaps church has disappointed us. Perhaps uh, ministers and leaders have disappointed us. Perhaps uh, events have happened and you question God's sovereignty over those negative experiences that have come against you. Whatever it might be that has made your heart, your spirit marble-like and hard and impenetrative, allow this moment to remind you, you can't get stuck at stubbornness. Allow Jesus to reach into your life. I was once told by a sheep farmer that when a ewe would become pregnant, she would sometimes stray from the flock. And then when she would go in labor, wherever she was, she would just sit down. And at times, especially if she sat down on a ravine or, or if a storm was coming and they could not move her because when she would sit down, it, it, she did not care what was going on. When she was ready to deliver, she just sat down. And there are times, there are stories that, that we are told of farmers who have to actually go and build a shelter over the sheep that's unwilling to move so that she can safely deliver because of that stubbornness sometimes. Wow, a stubborn sheep not willing to move. I've never heard of that before, and I'm being sarcastic. We've all heard of that in the analogy that we sometimes can be like that stubborn sheep. Let's not get caught in that spirit of stubbornness. Now, we have just one or two more of these real-life events to show us how we can easily become stuck. And, and I, I want to invite you now uh, over to chapter 7. We're not, we're not intentionally skipping verses 53 through 56, but nonetheless, this would uh, reflect the teaching of how Jesus desired that they move past their stubbornness. So we, we come now to Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 13. And, oh, what an amazing narrative turn we have here. And without reading this word for word, uh, the, the synopsis can come to light through verse 6. Jesus said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. People honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. You see, the Pharisees had, uh, led by the scribes, possibly with some version of the law close to their reference, chided Jesus for his disciples, can you believe this, not washing their hands before they ate bread. Now, there were some ceremonial laws that at their moment of effectiveness were precious to, to the, the children of Israel. But here, they, they, the Pharisees, become more concerned about the hands of the disciples not being washed when they eat bread than they were concerned about the own uh, horrible attitudes and thoughts in their hearts. And so Jesus called out, their hypocritical notions. Now, this is a painful place. Many people become stuck at hypocrisy. Verse 8, Jesus said of them, you neglect the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of man. Verse 13, invalidating the word of God by your traditions which have been handed down. This becomes it's such an overwhelming prospect for many that, that we would, even with something as precious as 
giving proceeds in the temple. You see this defined here, verses 9 through 13. The Pharisees at times would oppress that even to the point of individuals neglecting care that they could give to their aging parents. And so here, this pressing in of tradition overrided uh, the, the importance of the condition of the heart before God. And it created hypocrisy among the Pharisees and scribes. And here we have this powerful reminder, you can't become stuck there. You see, the number one characteristic of hypocrisy is the inability to recognize your own contradictions. That's the number one characteristic of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy enables you because the word actually means pretender. The, hip, the hypocrisy uh, does not allow you to see your own contradictions. In that pretense, you would assume you're fine. This became the plight of the Pharisees, and Jesus called them to this. Do not get stuck in that hypocrisy. What, what an amazing and riveting story uh, we find here. We even see uh, all the way through to verse 37, teaching that reinforces this stand against hypocrisy. Later uh, in this uh, part of the narrative, verse 21, Jesus reminded the Pharisees, you need to remember what comes from within the heart. In fact, Jesus has said, we're concerned about what we put in our mouths, not only the cleansing laws of the Mosaic uh, scriptures, but also the dietary laws. And Jesus said, you're so concerned about what you put into your mouth, you need to be more concerned about what comes out of the heart. Jesus said, this is what can come out of the heart. Uh, murders, thefts, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, slander, pride, foolishness. This comes out of the heart. All of these evil things, verse 23, can defile a man. Jesus encouraged right before his disciples, the Pharisees to consider the depth of their hypocrisy. We cannot become stuck at the place where we are okay that our lives are lived out in gross contradictions or even in mild contradictions. Let's be careful that we're not stuck in hypocrisy, but that we truly allow Jesus to put his finger on whatever that needs to be in our heart that must be brought to him in repentance so that he can cleanse and change us and give us a strength of heart that he desires us to have. So now let's move forward to verse 24. And we come next to what I like to call this place of getting stuck in the program. Now, this is a lengthy passage and our time is coming to a close. But in verses 24 through 37, we see Jesus again moving geographically to two places uh, on, the, on the shore, two ports of the Mediterranean Sea. So Jesus has now moved northward away from Capernaum, Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee, and now he's on the coast of the Mediterranean, probably some 30 miles from where the last episode of his miracles has taken place. And he comes into the region of Tyre, and he engages with a Syrophoenician woman, a Syrophoenician woman from Syria and Phoenicia, references an ethnicity that was obviously Greek and certainly Gentile. And she asked that, uh, that her daughter be freed from a demonic possession. And Jesus, Jesus emphasized, let the children be satisfied first. Now he's, he's building a correlation back to when the disciples were sent out. In Matthew 10, that record of the disciples being sent out emphasized that they must go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. And that same mission was recorded earlier in Mark's narrative without that inclusion. They must go to the house of Israel. But here, Mark picks up that emphasis when Jesus said, 
um, let the children, meaning they were to go to the house of Israel first, let them be satisfied first. It's not good to feed a child, uh, to not feed a child and throw that to the, the dogs. Now, people see this statement and think, oh, how, what a horrific statement. No, Jesus is in a moment of teaching. He has his disciples in one hand and he has a Gentile person in the other hand and he does not waste one second. He desires to see that although he commissioned the disciples to go to the house the, the uh, lost sheep of the house of Israel first. He did not allow them to be stuck in that initial program of going out. He actually moved them to understand that he would reach out to this Syrophoenician woman. Verse 29, after she replied, Jesus, your crumbs will be fine. Please heal my daughter. Oh, he recognized her great faith. Verse 29, and the demon was gone out of her. And then Jesus uh, came to the region of Tyre and into the region of Decapolis, this area of 10 Greek cities, and there was a deaf and mute man. And Jesus said in verse 34, Ephatra, and, and with his fingers in his ear, and he, he, he dipped with saliva and, and he, he touched this deaf and mute man and brought healing. Verse 35, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began to speak plainly. He gave them orders not to tell anyone, but then he ordered them more widely. Uh, but but he, he ordered them, um, but they more widely continued to proclaim it because they were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. He has even made the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. What a great phrase to end on this morning. He has done all things well. Now I include this final place where we can sometimes find ourselves stuck in the program, not to indicate that the disciples were fulfilling a program when they went out to the house of Israel first, but to indicate that at times we can become so focused on the present, this might could read stuck in the present. We at times can become so focused on what we're to do in the present that we forget that Jesus still does things new and he's calling us to that next place that may not look exactly like where we are at the moment. We can't get stuck in our own thought of the program. We must be open to what Jesus will do next because he may be calling us to reach across boundaries like he did here with the Syrophoenician woman. We may be called to actually roll up our sleeves and our own hands become dirty, even as Jesus emphasized when he reached down and actually touched this one who needed to be healed from, from the impediment and from the loss of hearing. And so we see a beautiful ending to this amazing demonstration of Jesus' love, his healing miracles, and his power. What an amazing calling. What an amazing reminder we have that Jesus is saying, go forward in your face. Don't become stuck, but realize I've called you forward and I do not desire that you stay in the same place, but that you allow me to lead you. These are the words of Jesus. And I'm so grateful I've had the opportunity to teach these two chapters with you. Um, I encourage you to go back and read through these verses again. Uh, this, this upload can be rewound after, after this presentation. You can go back and look at the points in the verses again to be reminded of how Jesus does not desire that you and I would become stuck where we are in our faith. Let him move you forward in strength and in purpose as only He can bring to your life. I love you a lot. Thank you for listening. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for teaching us your word. Help us not to become stuck. Uh, and God, help us to, uh, to trust you.
in every way. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Love you a lot. Look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.